0: Hello, everybody. I recently put out a combined big episode of My Magoan's Ghosts history, and that seems to have gone down quite well. So I've just gone back and found the series that I was most proud of at the time. <laughs> and I still am. I think it's really good. And I don't think anyone else has done, done this, like a, this history like this. And of course, I was kind of experimenting with characters and stuff at the time and doing accents and things. So this is the first one I did where I fully did that. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this. This is just a, a combination of my old Ecclesiarchy series, which again I think has gotten I got lost in the sort of mix of all the videos. So I just want to put it out now because I'm quite, I'm actually quite proud of this. I thought it was, I put a lot of effort into this and uh, I thought it was pretty good. So hopefully you enjoy this and um, new stuff is coming. Do not worry. Thank you all very much for watching and uh, please give a like and subscribe and share this around if you think anyone will like it. And to everybody supporting the channel, thank you. I'll just say all this now so I don't say it at the end again. Thank you all very much. I'll be back again very, very soon. Hope you enjoyed this if you've never seen this before. And long-time viewers, it's still good, right? It's still good. Come on. All right. Thank you all very much. Bye-bye. my fellow servants of the Imperium of Mankind please find attached the following official revised history of the Ecclesiarchy to be disseminated amongst your own organisations and any you are attached to previous versions are to be eradicated from your records by any means necessary any queries regarding this Revision should be forwarded to the office of the Inquisitorial Representative. Regards, Inquisitor A.B. Prince The Adeptus Ministorum The Adeptus Ministorium, or the Ecclesiarchy as it is generally known, is a massive organisation founded on the worship of the Emperor through its preachers, confessors, missionaries and cardinals, the ecclesiarchy controls the veneration of the masses, giving their homage an organised focus. The Imperial Creed, practised by the ecclesiarchy and its billions of adherents, is the only official religion of the Imperium, Although the interpretation of the Ecclesiarchy's rites and dogma can vary, any extreme deviance from its strictures is considered heresy, and is dealt with severely. The Ecclesiarchy has guided the servants of the Emperor for nearly 10,000 years, but deep within its ancient records its beginnings can still be traced. In the miles of catacombs beneath the ecclesiarchal palace, the dusty journals of past ecclesiarchs nestle next to scrolls containing the confessions of heretics and blasphemers. Deeper into the library, fully a day's walk from the nearest secret entrance, are the chronicles of Lord Van Dyre. Even further still is the Vault of origin where the earliest records are kept. Dating back to the Horus heresy, most of these scripts are kept within pulsating stasis chambers. Their pages so brittle, they can never again be read or turned. Their beautifully illuminated and illustrated leaves are cracked and torn with age, and the letters have faded into indistinct greys. The secrets of the Vault of Origins are imparted only to the most high-ranking officials of the Ecclesiarchy. Even the Inquisition are denied access to the burial chamber of history, lest they destroy the Ministorum's glorious past in their quest for knowledge and truth. The Horus Heresy. Even before his interment in the Golden Throne, the Emperor was worshipped as a god by many members of the Imperium, especially on the more regressive planets rediscovered during the Great Crusade. A primitive people spoke of gods descending from the skies in chariots winged with fire, and of beings who could smite down a foe with a mere glance. Of course, such fanciful descriptions could apply to almost any Imperial servant landing on a planet in a dropship, but the Emperor's unique powers and presence meant that he was venerated as a living god wherever he passed. Then the torturous storm of the Horus heresy tore at the fabric of the Imperium. As humanity was embroiled in an apocalyptic civil war, the fate and future of mankind hung in the balance. If Horus were to triumph, humanity would be swept into the power of the dark chaos gods. In the end, while the followers of Horus assaulted the Imperial Palace on terror, the traitor Warmaster and the Emperor faced each other on the rebel Warmaster's battle barge. Their titanic conflict reflected the heresy as a whole. A battle fought in the mind, as well as with physical weapons. After a bitter struggle, the Emperor destroyed Horus, but was fatally wounded himself. The Space Marine Primarch Rogul Dawn discovered the Emperor's devastated body, held alive only by the enormous power of his will. The Emperor was placed in stasis and the Adeptus Mechanicus constructed the Golden Throne to sustain his shattered form. As the Emperor's body was incarcerated into the throne and its life-giving properties flowed through his carcass, the Emperor's great mind soared into the warp. Founders of the Faith Following the ultimate sacrifice of the Emperor, the Imperium was swept by a general upsurge in adoration and worship for him. Visionaries and prophets appeared on every world, and cults following these divinely inspired individuals soon grew. There was no central organisation, No. Control, and even on the same planet there could be hundreds of different denominations, each performing their worship in a different manner, every one of them interpreting the Emperor's will in a slightly different way. As is the way of such things, the stronger cults grew and prospered, while the smaller, weaker ones faded away or were incorporated into larger sects. Compromises of interpretation were found and slowly many cults became united. Although lots of worlds still had several different sects, other cults managed to spread beyond the surface of their planet, their servants travelling to other stars and worlds to spread their own vision of faith. The most successful of these was the Temple of the Saviour Emperor, The Temple of the Saviour Emperor The Temple had a number of advantages over its theological rivals. For a start, it was centered on Terra, the Imperial Planet, the center point of the human race and the resting place of the Emperor himself. Secondly, its fanatical leader was originally a well-respected and highly decorated Imperial Guard Officer, who served in the defence of the Imperial Palace. He claimed he was sent instructions by the Emperor who came to him in dreams and visions. His original name has long since passed from memory, but the officer renamed himself Fatidicus, which means prophet in one of the ancient Terran tongues. Fadidicus formed a massive following from the Imperial forces on Earth. From lowly scribes and clerks to Imperial Navy commanders and colonels of the Imperial Guard, the Temple of the Saviour Emperor welcomed everybody. As time passed and these followers spread out across the Imperium in pursuit of their various duties. The beliefs of the Temple of the Saviour Emperor spread with them. Army and Navy officers initiated their men into the rites of the Temple, while zealous missionaries travelled through the Imperium, teaching their own religious code to anybody who would listen. They would use their immense skills to slowly incorporate the beliefs of those they met, while also imposing the doctrines of the Temple of the Saviour of the Emperor. At the venerable age of 120, Fatidicus died, but by now there were over a billion dedicated followers on Earth itself and countless servants throughout the segmentum solar. One of the other main advantages of the temple was the fact that their theological direction was massively influenced by a reformed word-bearer known as the Anchorite, who turned from the path of damnation and used his knowledge of the religious teachings taught to him upon cultus, and given to him presumably by visions of the Emperor as well. This gave the Temple a far more sound theological and philosophical background compared to many of their competitors. This would go on until the current age, with the anchorite gifting the ecclesiarchy a trove of religious knowledge and visionary thought that others would not be able to compete with. Unfortunately due to the fact that he was a former word-bearer, it is the view of the Inquisition that many of the tenants of the ecclesiarchy are potentially tainted. But that is an issue that will be resolved very shortly. In many places, the Imperium was still reeling from the anarchy left by the Horus Heresy, and the Temple of the Saviour Emperor provided a uniting force to instill cooperation between the lowliest and the highest. Those sects which did not, or could not, incorporate the Temple's wishes faced political and economic annihilation. The population would be roused to cast out the unbelievers and on many worlds this persecution turned to violence. Although always openly abhorring the more excessive deeds performed in its name, the Temple of the Saviour Emperor's power grew and grew. This process of integration and merging continued into the start of the 32nd millennium until almost two-thirds of the Imperium was united behind the Order. On terror, the only non-followers were the adepts of the Cult Mechanicus and the Space Marines, who had their own traditions and forms of adoration. Early in the 32nd millennium, The Temple of the Sabia Emperor was recognized as the official religion of the Imperium, and was given the title of Adeptus Ministorum. A couple of centuries later, the head of the Ministorum, the Ecclesiarch Venerus II, became a High Lord of Terror, and over the next 300 years, the importance of the Ecclesiarchy became such... That the ecclesiarchy's seat on the council of the high lords was made permanent. The Adeptus Ministorum grows. With the backing of the Adeptus Terror, the ecclesiarchy continued to increase its hold over imperial citizens and soldiers at a phenomenal rate. Those who refused to join the Ministorum were declared unbelievers and banished from their communities, or even executed as heretics. The Adeptus Ministorum split the Imperium into areas called dioceses, each led by a cardinal who controlled the missionaries and preachers of hundreds of worlds. As the size of the Ministorum grew, a whole subsection of the establishment became devoted to the logistics of running such an immense organisation. Archdeacons and deacons coordinated the construction of shrines and temples and founded the principles on which tithes would be paid, and their servants maintained the majestic edifices rising up all across the Imperium. Only one other order posed a threat to the power of the Ecclesiarchy. Founded around the planet Dimamar, the Confederation of Lights was a penitent faith that believed the sacrifice of the emperor should serve as an example to everybody. Their ideas of poverty and humble living directly contradicted the teachings of the ecclesiarchy. In the viewers of the Ministerium, sacrifices were made by the citizens. The ecclesiarchy made its sacrifice in other ways than raw money. And wealth. The Confederation of Light was powerful, and the Ministerium's missionaries could do little to penetrate the sect's followers. Finally, the Ecclesiarchy, with the unanimous vote of the High Lords of Terror, declared the first war of faith. The Confederation of Light was declared a heretic assembly and forces of the navy and imperial guard along with thousands of untrained followers who wished to serve the emperor in the righteous conflict were brought in to eradicate this spiritual threat. Although the odd cell and shrine escaped the forces at the ecclesiarchy's disposal, as a working religion the Confederation of Light ceased to exist. The dominance of the Adeptus Ministorum was complete. By the end of the 33rd millennium, with the exception of the planets controlled by the Adeptus Mechanicus and the Space Marines, every Imperial world had its cathedral dedicated to the Emperor. Thousands of shrines dotted every planet, and the tithes and collections of billions of followers flowed into the Ecclesiarchy's coffers. This money was used to build even larger temples, to outfit the shrines in the most lavish decoration, and to fund more Wars of Faith, to maintain the Ministorum's control. Wars of Faith and Crusades. The major difference between a War of Faith and a Crusade are its origins and who takes part. A crusade is ordered by the authority of the High Lords of Terror, and generally involves all the different organisations of the Imperium, including Space Marines, Imperial Guard, the Imperial Navy, the Adeptus Ministorum, and the administrative forces of the Adeptus Terra. A War of Faith is by command of the ecclesiarchy alone, and primarily concerns only members of the Adeptus Ministorum and the followers of the Imperial Creed. Aside from this general distinction, the two overlap considerably. The object of a crusade, whether it is the extermination of an alien race, or the subjugation of rebellious imperial worlds is generally considered to be an affront against the Emperor and therefore is declared a war of faith by the ecclesiarchy. When a war of faith is announced, the ecclesiarchy will declare the objectives of the war and declaim the heretic, godless targets of the Emperor's wrath. However, This is more a matter of stirring popular support than anything else. Almost all Crusades are additionally dubbed Wars of Faith. Space Marine Crusades are another matter entirely, and are never Wars of Faith. Not all Wars of Faith are Crusades. Sometimes the Ecclesiarchy is allowed to pursue its own ends without outside interference, There are true wars of faith when the Ecclesiarchy prepares to battle an enemy for the sake of its beliefs rather than to quell a rebellion or to occupy an alien-held planet. When not part of a crusade, wars of faith are funded and organized solely by the Ecclesiarchy and contain only warriors from the Adeptus Auroritas and Fratares Militia, led by members of the Fratares Clergy. The ecclesiarchy does not have supreme authority to order wars of faith. The adventure must be approved by the other high lords of terror. Wars of faith are sometimes assisted by forces of the other high lords and even armies of the imperial guard. Wars of faith can be conducted against factions within the ecclesiarchy who have been deemed heretics or may take the form of punitive attacks against alien races. Wars of faith may even be conducted against unexplored regions of the galaxy, and comprise a multitude of missionaries and the forces to protect them as they bring the light of the Emperor to the faithless. This history continues in Part 2 with the Age of Apostasy and the Reign of Blood. THE AGE OF apostasy. The power of the ecclesiarchy spread into every facet of Imperial life. From the humble miners and clerks, through Imperial Guard and Navy officers, to planetary governors and High Lords of Terror themselves, everybody was adherent to the Imperial Creed, in theory at least. Frequently, the high lords would take their lead from the views of the ecclesiarch, believing that he was the mouth of the emperor, a belief the ministerium did nothing to contradict. Soon, the ecclesiarchy was indirectly dictating imperial law, organising armies, deciding which threats gained priority, and where to direct imperial resources. As the grip of the Ecclesiarchy grew, elements of the Imperium railed against such control. In the High Lords' Councils, the Fabricator-General of the Adeptus Mechanicus opposed the will of the Ecclesiarchy, and the Chapter-Masters of the Space Marines also viewed Imperial orders with doubt. Following their lead, the Administratum began to fight against the pervasive force of the Ecclesiarchy. Angered by their loss of control, the Administratum began to re-establish itself as the commanding, binding power within the Imperium. So began a feud that has lasted 7,000 years to the present. The Administratum exercised its influence in a number of ways, undermining the authority of the Ecclesiarch, influencing votes in the Council of the High Lords and positioning its own loyal followers in powerful posts. From the late 34th to the early 35th millennium, the power of the ecclesiarchy waned. Following the election of a series of disastrously weak and incompetent ecclesiarchs, the Administratum managed to wrest much of its control back from the Ministorum. As time passed, the Administratum gained dominance once more. To the populace at large, the Ecclesiarchy was as mighty, all-seeing and powerful as ever. But behind the scenes, the Administratum was dictating the agenda of the Holy Synod. In an attempt to escape the clutches of the High Lords of the Administratum, Ecclesiarch the VI, Move the Holy Synod and the upper echelons of the Adeptus Minestorum to the planet of Ophelia Seven, in the Segmentum Tempestus. This had been Benedin's diocese as a cardinal, and was possibly the richest planet after Terra and Mars. The ecclesiacal palaces on Ophelia covered nearly 90,000 square miles and soared 4,000 metres into the sky. They were only rivalled by the Imperial Palace on Earth. Separated from the designs of the Administratum by sheer distance, the power of the Ecclesiarchy grew again. With a succession of punishing increases in tithes, the resources of the Ministorum reached its height. The cardinals of different dioceses competed with each other to erect the most magnificent monuments to build the largest and most ostentatious temples and cathedrals. The purges of so-called heretical cults increased significantly, as any opposition to the word of the ecclesiarch was ruthlessly crushed. Separated from the Administratum, the Ecclesiarchy began to form its own fleets of interstellar ships and armies. The Freterous Templars, as these forces came to be known, numbered many commercial transports and warships, and dozens of fighting armies, each of which rivalled an Imperial Guard regiment in strength. All the while, the Administratum buildings on Earth were left to ruin and crumble. In the middle of the 35th millennium, Nearly 300 years after moving to Ophelia, Gregor XI was elected to the position of Ecclesiarch. A deeply spiritual man, Gregor was seen as the next step in the Ecclesiarchy's growth, a fresh outlook to spur on what had increasingly become a stagnant Holy Synod. However, the Cardinals were totally unprepared for what would come next, Gregor announced that the Adeptus Ministorum would return to Earth. Although this was vigorously opposed both within and outside the Ecclesiarchy, Gregor felt that the true centre of the faith should be Terra, the home world of humanity. None could dissuade him from this course, and though it took him twelve years to organise the return, With the time needed for marshalling his resources, the physical requirements of warp travel, the doors of the ecclesiarchal palaces on Terra were finally opened once more. The refurbishment of the palaces took a heavy toll on the already thinly stretched resources of the ecclesiarchy, their funds depleted by the extremely expensive business of relocating to Terra. The ecclesiarchy had to increase tithes even further, to balance the costs of the rebuilding. As the rebuilding progressed, Gregor began laying the groundwork for other changes within the structure of the Adeptus Ministorum, changes that were seen as radical by many of his peers within the Holy Synod. Again, he refused to bow to opinion. But before his innovations could be put into action, Gregor died of food poisoning. Tears were wept at his funeral. It is said that six million followers filed past his open topped casket, and the cardinal spoke of a great man that had been taken from them too soon. However, no sooner had the tears dried and Gregor's body been interned in the great Mausoleum of Remembrance, then a new, more conservative Ecclesiarch was elected, and the ministerium continued as it had done before. Descent into Anarchy Fueled by the growing demands of the Cardinals, Ecclesiarchy tithes were increased once more. Unfortunately, much of the populace was already stretched to breaking point and this further increase was seen by many as unnecessarily exorbitant. Across many worlds of the Imperium, the populace openly rebelled against the ecclesiarchy and refused to pay. Even planetary governors spoke out against the excesses of the Ministerium, but they went unheeded the ecclesiarchy responded with a vengeance, sending its armies to crush any sign of revolt and executing higher officials as heretics. Alexis the 21st used the officio assassinorum to eliminate several governors who redirected their tithes to pay for their own planetary defence forces and is quoted as saying, They had forsworn the Emperor's protection for their own worldly gains. The tithes were used to build ever-larger temples, to line the highways of planets with statues of past Ecclesiarchs, and to decorate the Ecclesiarchal palaces with the rarest metals and gems. The unrest continued, massive uprisings spreading across the Imperium, only for the Frateris Templars of the Ecclesiarchy to arrive and quell any insurgencies. All those who defied the rights of the Ecclesiarchy were decried as heretics and suitably punished. Some thought the Ecclesiarchy's bloody methods of control were excessive, but it was nothing compared to what was to come. Even as the Imperium struggled to survive amidst bushfire wars and a lack of true leadership from Earth, further disasters befell humanity. In the early 36th millennium, the incidence of warp storms started increasing. Travel between all but the closest stars became risky, and as the centuries passed, the warp soon became a tumultuous mass of roiling tempests and storms. Navigation became difficult everywhere and hundreds of systems were totally isolated. With the resources of the Administratum and Ecclesiarchy turned towards their power struggle, much of the Imperium devolved into anarchy. In those few worlds still accessible by starships, the power of the Ecclesiarchy was brutally enforced by the Templars and, in any slight deviation from the Holy Decrees, was marked as heretical with the burnings and hangings which attended that crime. Seeing the turmoil racking the Imperium, Chaos Raiders poured forth from the Eye of Terror to attack and despoil their ancient foes. Orc Warlords rampaged across vast tracts of the galaxy, and there was nobody who could halt them. On the planets cut off from terror, Chaos and gene-stealer cults rose in rebellion and overthrew their governments, damning entire worlds to slavery and slaughter. Those worlds not overrun by alien attackers strove to retain what they could. As time passed, even the most advanced worlds were brought to their knees. As before, with no central guidance from the Adeptus Ministorum, even the worship of the Emperor began to devolve into a series of cults and sects. And in the trying times of those centuries, those who were once brothers under the light of the Emperor fought against each other to assert their religious ideals. Much of the Imperium was under a malaise of pre-apocalyptic doom, Crazed zealots denounced the ecclesiarchy and claimed the Emperor was displeased with their greed and excesses, sending the warp storms as a test to judge the truly faithful and set them apart from heretics and sinners. Spurred on by these statements, citizens turned to flagellation and self-mutilation to prove their belief and faith. Whole populations became seething masses of despair-laden cults, each trying to outdo the other in their torturous devotion to the Emperor. Strange splinter groups grew in power, preaching extreme causes. Bloodthirsty pogroms eradicated many innocents as the populace tried to stem the wrath of the God-Emperor. In many communities, any small deviation from what was deemed normal brought instant death to a child and its family. Whole populations were enslaved or slaughtered, deemed heathens for some real or suspected deviancy. High Lord Van Dyer The name most famously connected with the Age of Apostasy and the architect of the reign of blood was Gorg Van Der three hundred and sixty first High Lord of the Administratum. Van Dyer had a hard reputation and was a staunch opponent of the Ecclesiachy's dominance. It was rumoured he used assassins and blackmail to achieve the rank of High Lord, and none within the Administratum dared oppose him. Shortly before his ascendancy to the vaulted rank of High Lord, Van Dyer was instrumental in the election of Ecclesiarch Paulus III, a degenerate incompetent who was easily controlled by Van Dyer and his followers. Once he had established his position within the Administratum, Van Dyer moved in to take over the Ecclesiarchy. While other High Lords had manipulated the Adeptus Ministorum covertly, Vandire was brazenly open about his intents. In the end, Vandire personally led a hand-picked contingent of Imperial Guard officers into the Ecclesiarchal Palace and overthrew Paulus III in what can only be called a military coup. Declaring Paulus to be a traitor to humanity, he had the Ecclesiarch summarily shot and took upon himself the dual role of High Lord of the Administratum and Ecclesiarch. Shaken and terrified, the Holy Synod could do nothing to oppose Van Dyre as he set about eradicating any within the Administratum who opposed him. As Van Dyre's wrath fell upon the Cardinal's, all those not already fleeing, elected to return to Ophelia, to escape the High Lord's clutches. However, fate thwarted them, and as their ship entered the warp, it was engulfed by a huge storm, and they were never seen again. Dyer claimed it was the will of the Emperor, evidence of his divine right to reign over the Imperium in the Emperor's name. Vandier elected cardinals of his own choosing to fill the mahogany benches of the Holy Synod Chambers. He chose a calculated mix of weak-willed fools and brilliant geniuses with just the right amount of cruelty to ensure they would enforce his will without any qualms. The High Lord now had total, unopposed control of both the ecclesiarchy and... The Administratum. The Imperium was about to face its darkest time since the Horus heresy. The Reign of Blood. Van Dyer was insane, a paranoid megalomaniac who saw plots and intrigue everywhere. His mind was twisted in every way and he delighted in torturing his victims, declaring he was purifying their souls for the Emperor. He expected his every word to be recorded for posterity and was constantly accompanied by a plethora of scribes whose job was to note down everything he said or any particular innovative tortures he inflicted in the converted catacombs beneath the ecclesiarchal palace. His mood would swing violently, laughing one moment and murderously angry the next. Van Dyer would often fall into a trance-like state, during which he would argue with himself in a mumbling voice, and on other occasions he would shout out loud for no apparent reason. He claimed he was receiving messages from the Emperor. These Meditative periods would always be followed by bouts of excessive violence. He had a huge, tri-D map of the Imperium installed in his audience chamber, with a constant relay of current warp-storm activity. As soon as a world was reachable, he would dispatch a war fleet to establish control. The reign of blood affected the whole Imperium, Sycophantic army and navy officers were only too ready to execute Van Dyer's orders. Virus bombing the hive world of Kalena without reason, invading the farmlands of Boris Minor, and enslaving every female child under twelve years of age, using the orbital batteries of Jehana to melt the planet's ice caps drowning nearly four billion people in the resultant floods. The list goes on and on, meticulously recorded by Van Dyer's scribes. Van Dyer would dictate long speeches bemoaning the wretched state of the Imperium, demanding justice against the cross-section of humanity that was his current object of hate. Daughters of the Emperor. Early in the reign of Blood, Van Dyer's extensive network of spies notified the High Lord of a particular sect which had previously eluded the attention of the Ministerium. It was a small cult, perhaps only 500 members in total, on the little known Agri world of San Loire. Van Dyer was furious when he first heard of the group, but as his agents continued to explain the nature of the cult, His interest swerved from homicidal intent to covetousness. The sect, known as the Daughters of the Emperor, contained only female members, and devoted itself to worship of the Emperor through inner purity. The Daughters of the Emperor studied the ancient arts of war, using a taxing learning process to clear their minds of all worldly considerations. Owning their skills over their entire lives. His interest piqued, Van Dyer ordered a ship to prepare immediately for a journey to Saint-Loire and announced he would honor the world with an ecclesiastical visit. With an entourage of nearly a hundred thousand servants and soldiers, Van Dyer arrived on Saint-Loire. As the miles-long procession made its way to the Temple of the Daughters of the Emperor, Vandier's agents moved ahead of the ecclesiarchal train, forcing the meagre population of the farms and towns to line the streets and show due respect. Those who failed to cooperate were executed as heretics, regardless of their reasons. Every newly-born babe and ancient elder were dragged, from their homes to witness the arrival of the Ecclesiarch. The crowds were supplied with laurels and gifts to present to Van Dyer, showing him their scented flowers and crying their praise at gunpoint. Hollow vids of the various ceremonies performed by Van Dyer were spread throughout the accessible Imperium, and the propaganda was used to further enforce the power of the Ecclesiarch. Upon reaching the temple, Vandire found the gates barred against him and was informed by a young daughter of the Emperor that the Order did not recognise his authority. Expecting the customary explosion of rage and destruction, Vandire's terrified functionaries feared for their lives. However, Vandire had anticipated such an insolent response and had already considered the solution. He ordered the Daughters of the Emperor to witness a feat that would prove he had the favour of the Emperor. With a small bodyguard of men, Van Dyer entered the temple and was conducted to the main hall. Before the assembled order, Van Dyer knelt in supplication to the Emperor, praying for his protection, clutching the ecclesiacal rosarius in both hands. Standing again, he ordered one of his guards to shoot him with a lance pistol. The officer refused at first, begging with Van Dyer not to endanger himself. Van Dyer's response is quoted as, ''There is no danger. I have the Emperor's protection.'' ''Do you doubt that?'' The officer had no answer to such a question. Loaded as it was with subtle malice and the threat of punishment, He duly raised his pistol, aimed at the Ecclesiarch's chest, and pulled the trigger. As the bolt of energy struck Van Dyer, there was an explosion of light, blinding all who stood in the hall. As they recovered their senses, they saw Van Dyer standing totally unharmed in the centre of the chamber, leaning on his bone-walking cane. Almost as one, the Guardsmen and the Daughters of the Emperor fell to their knees in worship. As he later boasted to his scribes, Van Dyer had gambled that the isolated Daughters of the Emperor would have never heard of a Rosarius or the conversion field generator it contained. Taking oaths of fealty from the Daughters of the Emperor, Van Dyer elevated the sect to the position of ecclesiastical bodyguard, and took them back to Terra with him. From then on, the warrior women became his personal retinue of soldiers and companions, and Dyer renamed them the Brides of the Emperor. They were trained by the best teachers in the Imperial Guard to combine their own skills with the modern weapons of war, and word of their dedication to the protection of Vandai spread through the Imperium they were his constant guardians and his silent executioners who would kill with a word from their lord the brides not only served as van dyer's bodyguard but also as servants and companions they tasted the high lord's food fed him when he fell weak with illness nursed his frail body, and entertained him with singing, dancing, and other more exotic skills. For all their gaiety on occasion, the Brides of the Emperor were still hardened fighters, and when the Holy Synod tried to have Van Dyer assassinated a few years later, the Brides went into the meeting chambers, locked the doors, and emerged an hour later, carrying the severed heads of every cardinal present. This history continues with Sebastian Thor in Part 3. Sebastian Thor. The violent repression and wanton slaughter continued for seven decades after Van Dyer's ascension to the ecclesiarchal palace. The resources of the Adeptus Ministorum were directed towards bloodthirsty pogroms and the building of immense new monuments to the Emperor and Van for instance, the Purge of Lastrati On the hive world of Lastrati a sect known as the Divine Army gained control. Their rigid code of behavior was ruthlessly enforced. Any person suspected of even the slightest digression would be hideously tortured and then executed. Whole swathes of the population were eradicated by genetically attuned viruses which picked out particular traits which did not conform to the Divine Army's image of a human being. Millions were enslaved and worked with no food or water until they died, running huge factories and mining ore from the depths of Lestrati. So many died that later gangs of slaves, hundreds of thousands strong, were used to dispose of the bodies before their own rotting carcasses were added to the funeral pyres that blackened the sky. The flames weren't restricted to the dead either and the burning of heretics in one hive reached such terrible proportions that it is claimed the highest dune outside its walls is made entirely from the ashes of humans it is known locally as the hill of heretics the pilgrims who visited lestrati can also see such sights as the plain of purity 2,500 square miles, backed four feet deep with polished bones, each individually inscribed with the litanies of faith in tiny letters. These are not heretics, but the bodies of the faithful, who were laid out in massed open graves, so that the emperor could see those who had been loyal. Then there is the Path of Damnation, stretching for 5,300 miles. This road is lined on both sides with jubits every pace. Hung from these are the bodies of blasphemers who spoke out against the tortures and burnings. Such was the carnage wrought by the Divine Army that, when contact was re-established with the Imperium, There were only two and a half million inhabitants left on a world that had originally boasted a population of 14 billion. These kind of religious excesses were not rare by any measure. Van Dyer's insanity was ever directed outwards and though distant planets boasted mile-high spires and cathedrals, The Terran palace itself was allowed to fall into decay once more. Whole wings of the sprawling building collapsed from the weight of centuries, and the immense chandeliers and incense burners of the audience chamber were allowed to gutter and die. While the rest of the Imperium glowed with the radiance of gold and platinum and sparkled with the light of millions of rare gems, Van Dyer's own domain became a dark lair of shadows and dank, chilling winds. Dust lay knee-deep in places. The ancient relics were tarnished and stained. Tapestries became torn and mildewed. And rats and other vermin left their trail across the priceless rugs and carpets. Occasionally, just a single candle would be lit in the enormous expanse of the great hall, with only the odd footfall betraying the presence of the brides of the Emperor in the darkness. Even during the day, the padner of grime and filth on the stained-glass windows let through only a trickle of sunlight. When sweeping rains cleaned the outside of the windows, a shaft of brighter light might play about the floor of the Great Hall. But at this time, Vandai would retire to his chambers and sit for days on end in complete silence. The High Lord fell into long, nightmare-ridden sleeps, crying out in hysterical screams. His ancient body was pumped full of drugs and elixirs to keep the inevitable diseases and depredations of age at bay. However, with the guns of the Brides of the Emperor always ready to obey his will, the crippled High Lord still commanded with an iron fist. In his more lucid moments, the ailing Van Dyer could be heard muttering about the light and the writings of his scribes recorded that his fear of light seemed to grow with every passing day. It was with trepidation that a young agent appeared on terror, coming back from the northern reaches of the galaxy, around the planet of Dimamar. His report was disturbing to the High Lord's advisers and caused Van Dyer to break into a fit of apoplectic rage. Dimamar De had denounced the High Lord as a traitor of the Imperium, and the ancient rites of the Confederation of Light were being reinstated throughout the diocese. The name of one man was heard again and again all across the Segmentum Obscurus. His name was Sebastian Thor. None on terror knew where this man came from, or what his ultimate purpose might be. The puppet High Lords raged with debate for over a month as to what course of action to take. After his initial outburst, Van Dyer withdrew into himself more than ever, and for most of the council meetings would be seen huddled in the velvet and ebony throne of the Ecclesiarchy. "'surrounded by the ever-vigilant brides of the Emperor, his eyes staring at nothing. "'As more news came in of the revolt, it became clear that things would have to be stopped soon. "'Within three months, another eighty systems had declared their loyalty.' to the Confederation of Light, and only the weight of the Ministorum's armies and fleets in other sectors prevented similar occurrences all across the northern reaches. The most trusted and loyal of the Fratares Templars were dispatched to deal with the threat and were ordered to raise Dimemar and eradicate every living creature on the world. The war fleet was duly sent, but shortly after it jumped into warp space outside the Clax system, it was smashed asunder by a warp storm of gigantic proportions. The last astropathic transmission reported white arcs of energy tearing apart the hulls of the ships, the power of the storm literally twisting men and machines apart turning soldiers inside out and disintegrating everything. The klax system had been cut off ever since by the swirling tempest, and it is claimed that those who pass close by can still hear the screams of the dying and feel the panicked last thoughts of the astropaths echoing through the whole region. It is an area of ill omen, now known as the Storm of the Emperor's Wrath. With this huge blow to the Ecclesiarchy's military power, the whole of the Segmentum Obscurus erupted into rebellion. The Cardinal's palaces were stormed by frenzied converts who tore down the hangings, burned the icons, and smashed the ornate stained-glass windows. Through all the madness the name of Sebastian Thor still kept appearing. Who was this shadowy figure who seemed intent on the destruction of the Ecclesiarchy, and with that, the Imperium itself? Perhaps he was some form of vessel for the gods of chaos, another Horus attempting to enslave humanity once more, or maybe some other vile alien influence controlled him one of the many creatures of the warp, or one of the immensely powerful elder races, hitherto undetected. As more information was relayed back by the Ministorum's agents, the High Lords were stunned by the news. Thor was no demonic entity, intent on corrupting the Imperium. He was just a man, born in the Dimamar Scholar Progenium Habitat interrogations of old companions revealed that he had been a devout if somewhat introverted follower in his early life. However, Thor recently claimed to have visions of the Emperor and warned that disaster was befalling mankind. It was claimed that Thor had cast an old preacher from the pulpit in the middle of a prayer session and denounced the ways of the ecclesiarchy. With an eloquence and charisma the informants could not explain. Thor spoke to those present, reaching into their hearts and minds with his words. News of the incident spread and soon thousands travelled to hear Thor's sermons and went away with a new religious zeal burning in their cells, spreading the message even further. Members of the heretic Confederation of Light approached the young man in secret, and in his next service he openly declared his loyalty to the sect. Thor was brought before the Imperial Commander, Gaius Welkinin, and spoke of his visions and dreams, and of his ambitions to rid the Imperium of Van Dyer's tyranny. No one could explain what raw power was held in Thor's voice, but the governor immediately swore his loyalty to Sebastian Thor and placed Dimamar's army at his disposal, as the adept had requested. As word spread, anarchy embroiled the Segmentum Obscurus and desecration, looting and wanton destruction erupted. Although Van spies were exposed and driven out with startling efficiency, it became clear that Sebastian Thor's army had grown to over five million followers within the space of a year, and the huge entourage was slowly making its way through the Imperium towards terror. Even some of the surviving Frataris Templars joined his forces many legends sprang up around Thor and his long journey and miraculous events were attributed to his presence. Some of this can be explained by the oratory skills of the young adept, such as the way the population of the planets he passed through would gather their resources to feed and house his immense following. Others remain true mysteries, like the navigators' tales of the utter calmness of the warp as they journeyed from system to system. Though the rest of the galaxy was still embroiled in the raging tempest that had engulfed the Imperium for many hundreds of years, the massive fleet of the Confederation of Light passed through the warp without hindrance. The over of the navigators dubbed him... "'Abstractia priomnis, Master of the Warp.'" The news of Sebastian IV spread from Segmentum Obscurus to other parts of the Imperium. Distance exaggerated the message, and soon Thor was being hailed as a godlike being. With much of its armed might destroyed at clacks, the Adeptus Ministorum could do little to stop system after system, Diocese after diocese, from swearing loyalty to the new wave of belief, centred around Thor. Despite fierce opposition from many cardinals and confessors, who saw their power, traditions and whole way of life being destroyed, Thor's creed converted millions of followers. Cooperation and sacrifice became the doctrine of those who heard Thor's impassioned speeches, delivered from different planets along the route to terror. Although many opposed Thor, all across the Imperium the tide had changed against Van Dyer. The masses had been pushed too far, and this time they had a leader to unite behind. The Wars of Apostasy More disturbing news was to reach the Council of the High Lords. Until now, the Adeptus Mechanicus and the Space Marine Chapters had played only a small role in the Age of Apostasy. The vagaries of warp travel made any long-distance journeys hazardous at best and impossible in some areas. Instead, the Adeptus Astartes' planets and the forge worlds of the Adeptus Mechanicus became fortresses amidst a sea of anarchy. These organisations were on the defensive, protecting the few systems they could from the ravages of the Age of Apostasy and the carnage of vandyr's reign of blood. Of all the Imperium, it was these small empire-like enclaves which survived the whole epoch with the least harm inflicted. The guardianship of the Adeptus Mechanicus and Space Marines protecting them from the worst events of that terrible era. With the news of Sebastian IV and the spread of the Confederation of Light, many Space Marine Chaptermasters in the Segmentum Solar and the nearest sectors of the rest of the Imperium began voicing their support for this movement. The Adeptus Mechanicus issued a summons for the High Lords to account for themselves and to indict and execute Van Dyer as a traitor. Van Dyer's response was to dissolve the Council of High Lords and order his remaining armies and fleets to attack the rebellious Space Marines and Cult Mechanicus. Many officers refused such a suicidal endeavour, only to be burned or hanged as heretics. They were replaced with more tractable commanders. But by this time, Van Dyer's treachery was revealed. Enraged by what he saw, Gustav Hadratax, the fabricator general of the Adeptus Mechanicus, ordered regiments of the Martian Tech Guard to transport to Earth. These regiments were joined by space marines of the Imperial Fists, Firehawks, Soul Drinkers and Black Templars' chapters. Although much of the Ecclesiacal Palace had fallen into ruin, the central complex which housed Van Dyer's throne room was still an almost impregnable fortress. For months, the combined forces of the Tech Guard and Space Marines tried to breach its walls, only to be constantly thwarted by the Brides of the Emperor, who numbered some 10,000 fighters by this time. As the huge cannons of the Adeptus Mechanicus pounded on the walls of the palace and the Space Marine assault squads fought down mile-long corridors littered with dead, the attention of the High Lords and Van Dyre was turned outwards. But it was from within that the greatest threat was to come. The High Lord Fall Since the reign of blood started, another organisation had remained apart from the bloodshed and devastation. Within the secure walls of the Imperial Palace, the Adeptus Custodes continued their eternal vigil over the Golden Throne. To escape the anarchy that prevailed and to ensure the protection of the Emperor himself, the Custodians had cut themselves off from the outside completely. Only scraps of information passed through the sealed walls of the most holy of places. And it was only when the Space Marines and Adeptus Mechanicus moved against Van Dyer that the true extent of the treachery perpetrated by the High Lord became known to them. In secret meetings with the commanders of the Space Marines, the Adeptus Custodes learnt of the Reign of Blood, and the Brides of the Emperor defending the traitor High Lord. The Mysterious Order advised the Space Marines to continue their attack while they would do what they could. The defences of the ecclesiastical Palace were no obstacle to the Adeptus Custodes, with their lifelong knowledge of the Imperial Palace and its thousands of miles of hidden conduits and secret corridors. A small contingent of custodians, led by a centurion of the companions, made its way into the very heart of Van Dyer's domain. Surfacing not far from Van Dyer's audience chamber, they were confronted by the Brides of the Emperor. Calling for a truce and a parley, the centurion laid down his weapons and walked unarmed to meet the guardians of Van Dyer. For an hour he made an impassioned plea for the Brides to revoke their oaths, striving to convince them that they were fighting for evil, not the Emperor. However, they were not to be swayed by his arguments, and the nameless Centurion had only one option left. Leaving his men as hostages, the Centurion guided their leader and a bodyguard of five female warriors back into the tunnels. The Brides of the Emperor were soon lost within the dark, twisting maze, but the Silent Centurion led them unerringly into the heart of the Imperial Palace. Eventually, they emerged into dim light once more, and were met by the companions who guarded the gate, the secret entrance to the chambers of the Golden Throne itself. The Centurion explained what was happening, that the warrior women were about to enter the most sacred place in the galaxy and he would bring them before the Emperor himself. They were to see what no one but the Space Marine Primarchs and the companions had seen for six long millennia. The Centurion warned that to speak would be to die and led them to the golden light spilling from the open portal. What they saw was never recorded. The Companions swore the Brides of the Emperor to secrecy. It is rumoured they did indeed witness the Emperor himself held immobile in the flowing energies of the Golden Throne. What passed between them and the Companions is also a matter of myth. But when they stepped from the gate once more, their eyes burned with unparalleled anger and hatred. Without a word, the Centurion once more led them through the dark places of Earth, this time leading them directly back to the audience chamber. Their leader, Alicia Dominica, spoke of the treachery of Van Dyer and his depraved corruption of the Ecclesiarchy, but most of all, she spoke of his twisted perversion of their order. Burning with shame and anger, they renounced the name of Brides and once again became the Daughters of the Emperor. All the time, Van Dyer had stood oblivious to the revolt around him. Studying the tri Imperial map, looking up from his introspection, he blinked in surprise as he noticed the assembled warriors around him. The distant sound of gunfire had faded as their message was passed through the ecclesiastical Palace. The four thousand fighters who had survived the onslaught of the space marines and tech guard slowly filed into the massive hall. Van Dyer launched into a bloodthirsty tirade, explaining which systems needed to be crushed, issuing orders for fleets to be sent to eradicate Four and his following. However, even Van Dyer's scribes had deserted him and he was left alone in the audience chamber with the vengeful daughters of the Emperor. Elysia Dominica confronted Dyre. Her words are now engraved upon the black marble sarcophagus that contains her body. You have committed the ultimate heresy. Not only have you turned your back on the Emperor and stepped from his light, you have profaned his name and almost destroyed everything he has striven to build. You have perverted and twisted the path he has laid for mankind to tread. As your own decrees have stated, there can be no mercy for such a crime, no pity for such a criminal. I renounce your lordship. You walk in the darkness and cannot be allowed to live. Your sentence has been long overdue, and now it is time for you to die. Dominica drew her power sword and held it aloft for all to see. Vandier glanced around the assembled warriors, his brow knitted in confusion. Shaking his head slightly, the High Lord whispered his last words. I don't have time to die. I'm too busy. The power sword slashed down, beheading the traitor High Lord in one stroke and Cleaving his rosarius in two, the reign of blood had been ended. Reformation. The ecclesiarchy reborn. Although Van Dyers' reign of blood ended with the death of the High Lord, the age of apostasy was to continue for many centuries. Much of the Imperium was still racked by warp storms, and all manner of small empires and kingdoms were being carved out by Imperial Commanders and Cardinals. The Segmentum Obscurus was the most stable since the gifted Sebastian IV had begun his pilgrimage to Earth. However, with no Council of High Lords and no Ecclesiarchy, there was little hope that the rest of the Imperium could be swiftly restored to its former power. The spaceman in Chapter Commanders and the Fabricator General of the Adeptus Mechanicus ...set about resurrecting what remained of the High Lords of Terror. The copious notes of Vandai's scribes provided damning evidence against many of those who had profited from the Reign of Blood. And the Fabricated General was adamant that all those implicated would face a trial for their conduct sooner or later. Many of the organisations were encouraged to purge their own ranks such as the Navigators and Chartist Captains. Imperial commanders were promoted from within the ranks of those who had opposed Van Dyer, while other High Lords were vindicated by their peers and duly kept their seats in the Council. However, there was still no Ecclesiarch. The Trial of Sebastian Thor. Messages were sent to Sebastian Four, requesting that he journey immediately to Earth. His reply was simple, explaining that he had more work to carry out in the northern reaches before he could continue his journey to Terror. A fast transport ship was sent to collect Four, but again he refused the invitation, insisting that he was not yet ready. Exasperated, the High Lords issued a decree declaring Thor a traitor and demanding he stand trial on terror for various seditious activities against the appointed officials of the Emperor. Thor was taken into custody without violence, commanding his followers to stay their hands and let the Emperor protect his messenger. The galleries of the huge court room were filled with thousands of Thor's supporters ...watching the proceedings with tense anticipation. The poor and wealthy alike travelled from all across the Imperium... ...to witness the trial of the Emperor's latest saviour. The Judicium Terran became a focal point for the faithful... ...and the end of long pilgrimages. Many of those who set out arrived months or even years after the trial had finished... ...but were determined to complete their journeys and show their support for Thor. The prosecution of Thor was vigorously pursued by certain members of the High Lords, their pride affronted by Thor's dismissive refusals. However, for every charge there was clear and concise evidence of Thor's innocence. He had not incited the people to smash the temples of the Ministorum, There were documented accounts of his sermons decrying such behaviour. He had not fought against soldiers of the Imperium, and many of those who had been sent against him were now numbered amongst his most loyal followers. Finally, after two months, the trial came to its end. The High Lords consulted each other for three days, debating what to do with this charismatic young man. It was the Captain General Excelsior of the Adeptus Custodes who delivered their verdict. After explaining that Thor was found innocent of all charges brought against him, Excelsior explained the dire need of the Imperium for a new Ecclesiarch. Since Thor had been proved totally innocent of even the most petty crime, he was an obvious candidate to fill the post in such a time of spiritual need. The crowds roared their approval, thanking the Emperor in his divine wisdom for sending Thor to deliver them. Speaking quietly, Thor declined the offer, and the council erupted into chaos. While the other High Lords ranted at one another and at Thor's impudence, and the watching supporters gasped in despair and disbelief, Excelsior Tucked Thor aside and spoke to him, although no one truly knows what the Captain General said to Thor, it is widely believed to have been, You will leave terror as an Ecclesiarch, or you will not leave terror at all. As the hall fell silent once more, Thor announced that he would take on the mantle of the Ecclesiarch, but only on certain conditions. He was to have the full backing of the High Lords whenever he needed it. He would make changes to the organisation of the Ecclesiarchy, and they would trust him in his actions. He also wanted to continue as he had been, moving across the Imperium, preaching to the people directly. It was as an orator that the Emperor had guided him, and with his sermons and prayers, he would unite the Imperium under the Emperor once more. Naturally the High Lords agreed and it was duly announced across the Imperium that for the first was the 292nd Ecclesiarch. The Reformation There were a number of important changes to the Adeptus Ministorum after the Reign of Blood, and throughout the Age of Apostasy Many of them were at the instigation of Sebastian Thor himself. Although Thor strongly disapproved of the way the ecclesiarch had been previously run, he was enough of a statesman to realise that radical changes in the faith were not what was required. There was enough instability already and what the populace was crying out for was solid leadership. Although many of Thor's ideas were never fully realised during his lifetime the foundations he laid down during his time as Ecclesiarch continued to hold the Adeptus ministerium together to this day. The first change executed by Four was the formation of the Synod Ministeria on Ophelia. Although the Holy Synod remains on terror and cardinals from all over the Imperium are free to gather there and discuss the issues concerning the ecclesiarchy. The Synod Ministeria acts as a secondary governing body further from terror. This has a twofold effect. Firstly, the Synod Ministeria relays and disseminates the dictates of the Ecclesiarchy and the Holy Synod, enforcing the laws of the Ecclesiarchy. Secondly, it provides a defence against the manipulation of the Ecclesiarchy by other organisations or even a single individual within the ranks of the ministerium itself. Never again will a high lord of the Ecclesiarch have total power over the Adeptus ministerum In a similar vein, each of the dioceses were broken down into smaller areas. Again, this had two effects. Each cardinal had less personal power, and controlled fewer men and resources. Secondly, with more cardinals within the Holy Synod, there would be more opposition to radical changes and plans, and so further diluted the power held by any one individual. Other transformations were at the order of the High Lords of Terror. The most important of these was the Decree Passive, Zero 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 one two eight eight slash M three six. Amongst other prohibitions on military activity, the decree passive forbade the ecclesiarchy from controlling any men under arms. Sebastian IV was ordered to disband the Fraternists Templars of Van Dyer, and any armies and fleets assembled by other members of the Ministerium while separated from Terra. This was duly done, but for one exception. Seeing that some military force would be needed, and not wishing the ecclesiarchy to be totally subservient to the will of the Adeptus Terra and the Imperial Guard, Sebastian Thor kept the one army he was allowed under the decree passive. Due to the archaic wording of the law, the Daughters of the Emperor did not break the ban. Incorporating the sect fully into the Ecclesiarchy was difficult, but eventually they were renamed the Orders Militant of the Adeptus Sororitas. Although the High Lords were uncomfortable with this development, they had no legal standing to oppose Thor, and his argument that the Adeptus Sororitas would regulate the Ecclesiarchy as much as enforce its will did not fall on deaf ears. Even with these major changes, there were hundreds of other details to be seen to. The Scholar Progenium needed organising again, the tithes would have to flow into Ministorum vaults once more, there were shrines to be refurbished and temples to be rebuilt. However, after spending a wearisome decade on terror, Four departed the ecclesiastical palace and left the bulk of the work to the archdeacons and cardinals. He journeyed all across the Imperium for the next 80 years, quelling heresy and apostasy wherever he came across it. At the age of 112, Sebastian Four returned to terror. He was to live for another six months before finally the Emperor claimed his soul. A massive wing was built onto the Mausoleum of Remembrance to contain his sarcophagus. The week after his death was declared a period of mourning and over 70 million pilgrims filed past his tomb within the first year. Huge murals commemorating his life and works adorn the three mile long passageway leading up to his burial chamber. The people of the Imperium still travel to terror to gaze upon the face of the Emperor's most faithful servant. This history concludes in Part 4 with the Plague of Unbelief. The Plague of Unbelief Of the many heresies and rebellions that marked the Age of Apostasy, one of the most notable is the Plague of Unbelief. Perpetrated by Cardinal Bucaris. it serves as a constant reminder to the ecclesiarchy and its clergy that power can corrupt those who wield it, it is the lament of the ecclesiarchy that Bucharest's zeal, determination and courage could not have been turned to the betterment of humanity rather than his own advancement. The Apostate Cardinal A few decades after Sebastian Thor's Ascension to the ecclesiacal throne, Cardinal Buchares headed a diocese centered on Gethalamor, to the galactic southwest of Earth. Gethalamor was not a rich diocese, but Buchares, driven by jealousy of his peers' achievements, vowed to build one of the largest temples to the Emperor's glory on his cardinal planet. After brutally enslaving the population of Galthalamor, Bukharis still needed more men and resources. Using an army of thugs and cutthroats, he conquered the nearby world of Randar. With access to the richer mines of that world, Bukharis's wealth grew. It was also in the Randar system that Bukharis joined forces with the renegade navy admiral Sahala, and a colonel of the Regalian 25th Imperial Guard Regiment called Gasto. With Imperial Guardsmen and Navy warships at his disposal, Bucares carved out a small empire to the galactic west of Earth, and within the next seven years, 50 star systems had fallen under his control. Bucharest's realm was cut off from much of the Imperium by a dense concentration of warp storms, and news of Sebastian Thor's ascension and the reorganization of the Ecclesiarchy had not yet filtered through. As Bucharest now controlled interstellar travel in his empire, he continued to suppress any information regarding the events on Earth. Bucharest's Bucares announced that the Ecclesiarchy had fallen, corrupted by traitors and heretics. Using evidence from the time of Van Dyer, he declared himself the true Mouth of the Emperor and declared himself the head of the Adeptus Ministerum. To those who heard his elegant speeches, Earth was a lost cause and Gathalamor was the centre of faith from then on. The plague of unbelief spread, and Bucarus's teachings became the word of law. Every man must endeavour to help himself. Those who cannot do so are less than human and a burden to mankind. They must be cast aside, was a popular quote from the cardinal. Met with thunderous applause wherever he finished sermons. People were taught to look after themselves before any other consideration to ensure their own survival. That was how the human race would endure, by each member striving for their own advancement. The weak would be left behind, and only the strong would remain. Mankind's ascendancy would be ensured by these doctrines. The worlds under Bucharest's control became intolerable places, filled with looting gangs and power-hungry nobles. Neighbour fought against neighbour, and families split over the spoils of the chaos. Those who rose to prominence amidst such turmoil caught the eye of Bucharest and were rewarded with more power. Companies of mercenary guards were dispatched to enforce order in the name of Bucarus, led by those fortunate enough to have Bucarus's favour. Those who served the apostate cardinal were suitably rewarded, and those who failed him were appropriately punished. In this way, Bucarus's dominion spread north and west. Cautious of approaching too close to earth until his power was total, Bucharest forged his bloody path ever northwards. To the south, he stopped just short of the navy base at Bacca, fearing that Sahala's fleet would draw unwelcome attention from the squadron stationed there. To the north, he drew a wide berth around Cadia and the Eye of Terror, terrified that his hard-won domain would attract the attention of Chaos Space Marines with almost every system consolidated under his rule over the vast tract of space he moved on there were more imperial guard regiments that joined Gasto's mercenaries believing bucarus's story of the fall of the Ecclesiarchy and the adeptus terror to be true the ships of battle fleet pacificus on hydrofor bowed to the apostate cardinals command bucarus was almost ready to take on the might of terror itself Hoping surprise and cunning would outmatch the superiority of arms held by his enemies. Fortunately, Bucarus was to make a grave error. The continuing northerly advance of Bucharis brought him into territories under the protection of the Space Wolves. Along with almost every other Space Marine chapter, the Space Wolves had elected to protect their founding world and patrol only the nearest systems. When Bucharest's immense fleet dropped from the warp to envelop the Albia system, it encountered the Space Wolves cruiser Claw of Ras as it was preparing to leave. After a brief battle, during which a Navy cruiser and a transport ship were destroyed, the Space Wolves jumped into the warp and escaped. Bucharest's arrogance cost him dearly. He dismissed the encounter with the Space Wolves as a freak chance, and soon was conquering more systems in the sector. However, the fifth system he dropped into after the battle held more than he bargained for. It was the star system containing Fenris, the home planet of the Space Wolves. Almost as soon as Bukaris' fleet disengaged their warp engines, the Space Wolves' warfleet attacked. Although outnumbered and outgunned by the larger Navy ships, the Space Marines tore through much of Bukaris' fleet before racing back in system, from there they continued to launch hit-and-run attacks for the rest of the war. Despite two-thirds of his fleet being kept occupied with the Space Wolves ships, Bukardus managed to launch an assault on Fenris itself. Many of the huge transport ships were destroyed by the raging storms in the upper atmosphere, while others were shot down by the defense laser batteries of the Space Wolves fortress. However, a landing zone was established and thousands of renegade imperial guardsmen poured onto the ice world despite the adversity of the conditions the bloodthirsty warriors under bucarus's command vowed to exact revenge on the space Wolves for their lost comrades the captured fenrisians were enslaved and put to work providing materials for bucarus's army they were forced to lay makeshift roads across the treacherous glacial flats and made to cut down the huge trees of Fenris's forests to provide fuel for fires and the versatile engines of the Imperial Guard tanks. However, the Fenrisians were not easily tamed and they had to be guided closely, lest they try to rise against Bucarus and strike at the army where it would be most damaging. Whole communities were slaughtered, and a few scattered farms were butchered for Bukaris and his officers to feast upon. The women were enslaved, and the young and old were slaughtered, and left for the large carrion crows that circled the skies of the inhospitable world. Bukaris's advance continued, and his huge columns inexorably ground towards the Fang, until the ancient citadel was surrounded more troops were transported to the system, and though many carriers were destroyed by the Space Wolf's fleet with hit-and-ran attacks, the valleys and mountainsides around the fortress swarmed with legions of the apostate Cardinal. Massive siege guns pounded day and night, the dark skies illuminated with thousands of flares and the coruscating energies of void shields. Explosions shook the mountain of Assaheim, causing more avalanches and destruction. Salvos from orbiting ships gouged chasms into the steep slopes, and yet the armoured walls of the Fang endured. Sally's and attacks by the Space Wolves smashed the traitor siege works and annihilated their immense cannons. Surprise assaults by wolf scouts disrupted the supply lines, and for months on end the guns would fall silent for want of ammunition. Using hidden passages, riddling the mountains and linking all of Asaheim to the Fang, the space wolves penetrated deep into the enemy army. Screaming blood-curdling cries, the blood claws would attack the soldiers of Bucharest in the darkness of Fenris's forests. Ripping their foes apart with their teeth and hands To conserve ammunition and power packs Long fangs ambushed the mile-long tank convoys Often blowing apart entire mountain valleys To crush the enemies of the space wolves Beneath a storm of immense rock and rubble Dreadnoughts smashed their way into the heart of the marching columns Leaving a path of desolation in their wake Week after week Month after month, the siege dragged on. Bukharas sent suicidal assaults against the armoured entrances to the Fang, promising riches beyond avarice for the first men to break through. Every time the forces of Bukharas attacked, the Space Wolves repelled them, inflicting horrifying casualties. For three bloody years, the siege continued, attack after attack, Bombardment after bombardment fell against the walls and gates of the Fang. And yet, the citadel remained unbreached. Bucarus drew in more and more soldiers, until even his forces on distant Gathalamor were at a quarter of their normal strength. Believing his domains secure, he mustered his armies for one last assault to sweep all resistance before him. Fate intervened once more, but this time to deal at blow to Bukaris's plans. Out beyond the furthest planet in the system, reality tore itself apart as a war fleet emerged from the warp. As Bukaris's own vessels investigated, they were confronted by an armada of Space Wolves battle barges returning to their home planet. The Space Wolves lost no time in attacking, smashing nearly half of Bucharest's fleet in their first strike. Caught between the newcomers and the attack of the remaining Space Wolves vessels from the center of the system, Admiral Sahala ordered a withdrawal. Wasting no time in pursuit, the Space Wolves powered towards Fenris. The counterattack by Carol Grimblood's great company killed tens of thousands of traitor guardsmen in the first week. They were hurled from the mountain passes, and those who survived to reach the flats of Azerheim still perished. Giant wolf packs and vicious climate killed each and every invader the apostate cardinal managed to escape on a shuttle and link with Sahala, who dropped back out of the warp briefly to rendezvous with his fellow conqueror. Leaving Fenris to the Space Wolves, Bucharis pulled back his northern forces and consolidated his hold on the rest of his domain. Turmoil on Kyros. With Buchalus's attention focused on Fenris, the continued expansion of his empire had been slowed but not stopped. He had many sub-commanders still exploring westwards, and many systems had fallen into his clutches during the Battle of the Fang. However, reports began to come through of setbacks suffered in one newly discovered system, Kyrrhos. Kyros was not a poor or desolate world like Thalamor or Rana, it was a world of continent-spanning forests, deep lakes, and rolling grassland that boasted a population of a few million people. Most of Kiros's wealth came from the luxury goods it exported, exotic furs, startling elixirs and narcotics distilled from the native flora and fauna, and other rare indulgences. Bucaris could not understand why such a pampered planet would risk annihilation by opposing him. Abandoning his conquests within easy reach of Femris, Bucaris ordered his fleet and army back to Gothalimor, while he considered the problem. The apostate cardinal heard that despite horrendous carnage on the world of Kiros, the Kirosians were now closer to surrender. The commander in charge of the assault had wisely restrained the use of the more destructive weapons in his arsenal, fearing that he would scar the beautiful planet, which would make an ideal retreat for the aging cardinal. Bucharos was pleased with the commander's foresight, and sent him three extra companies of men, confident that these reinforcements would soon be hunting the abundant game of Kyros, chasing down the prey over the rolling hills of the natural paradise. It was not to be. The mercenary captain attacking Kyros, regretfully reported his surrender to the Kyrrhosians. Bucharos was stunned. He knew the Imperial Guard were not the most elite fighters of the Imperium, but a whole regiment of them should have been easily capable of defeating whatever meagre forces Kiros had to offer. Bucarus's agents returned from the system to make more detailed reports. The mercenaries had not faced a few hundred poorly armed, badly motivated defenders. The whole population had risen up against them each with his hunting rifle and other weapons. Millions of marksmen had riddled the hills and forests, ambushing the guardsmen and gunning them down in droves, before using the hunting trails and lodges to disappear into the wilderness once more. The whole countryside was hostile. There were no supplies. There was no respite. And when a suicide squad had charged into the heart of the captain's camp and detonated home-made explosives, the army lost the will to fight on. The road to Gefalamore. Soon after Kiros, another world managed to successfully rebel. The mining planet of guyan the miners had cut down their guards with drills and hammers, clambering over a mound of their own dead to strangle their foes with the chains of their shackles. After Goyan came Dulcea, then Vorst. The rebellions were cutting a path through Bokaris's domain, straight towards Gethalamore. On culture... Bolgaris laid an ambush, and when a small fleet appeared from the warp, it was attacked and almost entirely destroyed. However, a single shuttle managed to reach the planet's surface. Weary of the shuttle that had landed, the overall commander, Frederick cursed, kept his men and tanks on full alert. The waiting dragged on into a month, then two months, three months, half a year. A year later, almost to the day, the quiet farmers of culture went berserk. They burnt the crop fields, stormed the local barracks with crude shotguns and farming tools, losing three quarters of their number before overwhelming the enemy. They stampeded their vast herds of gigantic gore beasts into tank companies, crushing the war machines under a thunderous storm of house-sized animals. They dammed the rivers and flooded the towns where Kirst's men were billeted, sweeping away their own homes. Even the elderly and young children hurled makeshift grenades made from the local distilled fuel, setting light to the air vents of Lehmanruss tanks and choking the crew inside. All across both continents the people of culture stopped at nothing to rid themselves of their enslavers. Push from culture, and then Lima Rogan, Trodor, and a score of other worlds, Buchanus's coffers began to empty more rapidly than they could be filled. Many of his soldiers deserted, and there was infighting and dissension, even within the higher ranks of his army. And still, the revolt continued, like an arrow aimed at the heart of the apostate cardinal. Finally, Methelor, the closest system to Gethelamor, fell, its principal hive destroyed by a raging inferno started by the inhabitants overloading its geothermal power grid. Bucaris doubled the cordon on his own system and ordered every vessel to be stopped and searched. Not long after the fall of Methelor, a messenger arrived at the Cardinal Palace on Gethelamor, with a defiant look and a stern voice, the messenger proclaimed himself the envoy of Confessor Dolan Curiosius. Confessor Dolan called for the immediate surrender of Bucharis. The cardinal was ordered to resign his position and throw himself on the mercy of the emperor. Most importantly, he was to renounce his heresies and apostate idea of self-deliverance. The great confessor... The messenger's remains were nailed to the gates of the palace, where the rats and crows feasted upon them. Confessor Dolan would be coming to Gethala soon, and Bucharest wanted his slaves to have their first glimpse of their saviour, to be one of a man bound with chains and whipped through the streets. Soon enough, Dolan's shuttle was boarded and the Confessor was taken into custody, charged with various acts of heresy and treason against the Emperor. As Bukharas had promised, Dolan was chained and driven through the streets. Soldiers from his army whipped the Confessor with flails and hurled stones at him. They stuck hooks into his flesh and hung them with weights, driving him onwards with kicks and punches. However, the crowd that lined the streets were sullen and weary. There were no cheers, but there were no cries of condemnation either. Dolan was dragged across the continent in this way, his journey filled with over six months of constant torture and torment. He was not allowed to sleep. He was starved and had but a mouthful of fetid water a day to survive on, yet All the while, his fiery stare was not dimmed, and he never once bowed his head to the blows of his persecutors. Bucharis ordered a public trial of Dolan, charging him with blasphemy and heresy, along with other crimes of treachery, sedition and rebellion. He needed Dolan dead, but Bucharis didn't want to provide the desperate people under his heel with a martyr. Dolan would be humiliated and scorned, found guilty of the charges against him. Only when he was proved to be the enemy of mankind would he die, painfully and over a long period of time. The trial was broadcast across Bucharest's domain, so that those who witnessed the event would be in no doubt as to its validity, Of course, Bucharest had no thought of giving Confessor Dolan a fair hearing, but to the masses it had to be made to appear so. Following all the correct procedures and precedents, Dolan and hundreds of others were questioned and cross-examined. Dolan agreed to conduct his own defence, and when, after five long months, the prosecution had compiled his work, a thousand worlds waited in anticipation." Dolan explained how he had preached to the people of Kiros, explaining the tyranny of Bucharis and decrying the apostate cardinal's false doctrines. He instilled them with the will to fight for freedom, rousing the townsfolk and hunters with his fiery speeches. With his own testimony, this power was witnessed. His eyes burned with religious zeal. He gesticulated wildly to punctuate his thoughts, and his manner reached into the soul of everyone who watched and grabbed it tightly. He was a fierce man, some would say insane, yet he was loyal to the Emperor and his teachings. He would suffer any sacrifice and indignity to see Bucharest toppled, And he passed on that fervent hatred to all those who listened to him. For three days Dolan spoke, declaring how he had whipped up the grain harvesters of Belly-16 to drive their massive scythed machines into the enemy camps, though they would be killed in doing so. He led the Faradites as they charged the immortal tower, spurring them on when over 9,000 of their number fell to the minefields and defensive cannons. It was a speech from him that so incensed the population of Resto Primis, they overloaded the geothermal power network, cracking apart the planet's continents with a wave of volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. What matter? He cried as his crushed hands formed fists, raised before him. If a home is lost or even a world destroyed, if the sacrifice means the end to evil and the heresies of the Emperor's worst foes. At the end of the long tirade, Bucharest spoke. He explained that Dolan's own testimony had condemned him, that he had freely admitted to all the grievous acts and crimes he stood accused of. He had not denied a single charge. The Cardinal addressed his followers, reiterating Dolan's flagrant opposition to the true authority of the Ecclesiarchy. He called Dolan and his followers anarchists and idolaters, a threat to the stability of the entire Imperium. Dolan's acts of rebellion and heresy left him no choice but to order the Confessor's execution. Appealing for mercy, Of the Emperor upon Dolan's soul, he commanded his men to take him to the dungeons. For almost eight long months, Dolan endured unknown torment at the hands of Bucharis's torturers. When at last he died, his body was flung from the walls of the palace for the scavenging dogs and birds to feast upon. His body had been maimed beyond recognition. Hideous scars and burns marred his flesh, telling a tale of great pain and misery. Despite the horrendous torments inflicted upon his body, Dolan's face exuded a calm serenity, and peace lay like an aura across his corpse. Those who saw it wept openly, even though any who exhibited such grief were themselves accused of heresy, and put to death. The Carrion Eaters never had their banquet. Dolan's body disappeared shortly after and was never found. THE DEATH OF A TYRANT Bucharest's plan to shame the Confessor wildly backfired. In allowing the Confessor to speak, he had given Dolan the means to spread his message further across the stars than it ever would have done otherwise. When the Confessor's death was announced, Bukaris' domain erupted into revolt. Almost as one, the populations of a thousand worlds attacked their cruel overseers. Inspired by the sacrifice of the Great Confessor, millions of men, women and children faced the guns of their foes with their bare hands. Bukaris' palace itself was stormed, and traitors within his own ranks opened the gates to allow the faithful to gain their vengeance. As his few loyal servants held back the human tide that poured through the passages and halls, destroying everything in its path, Buchanus fled. Using a network of tunnels, he made his way to the spaceport, where he intended to board the next shuttle leaving and desert everything he had built up to preserve his own life. Again, his own closest followers betrayed him, hoping to save themselves from the savagery of the mob. Warned of Bukaris's imminent departure, the inhabitants of Gathalemur surrounded the spaceport. They threw themselves at its electrified walls until the generator short-circuited. Bukaris never reached his ship. The mob found him even as he was boarding. Swallowed up in a mass of hundreds of thousands of slaves crying for revenge, he was torn apart. His body was never recovered, but when the mass of repressed citizens dispersed, the scattered ashes of a fire were all that were left to mark the place of his demise. These are the important events of the Age of Apostasy. Others occurred, but are of less importance. The Ecclesiarchy now is a fundamental part of the Imperium, holding it together, one might say spiritually and temporally with the return of the primarch gilman this position has been called into doubt considering our lord commander's stance on religious matters being a child of the era of the imperial truth before the great heresy and during the great crusade the vast majority of the primaris that exist in our galaxy under his command of course are also childs of this decadent age, before all accepted the godhood of the Emperor. In order to facilitate a better working relationship, a new post was created to stand alongside the Primarch, the militant apostolic, to allow the Lord Gilliman and the ecclesiarchy to better work together and to ensure that each's authority was accepted amongst their various organisations. To his credit, the Lord Gilliman himself instigated this post, seeing how the universe was and the existence of the Imperial Church. The current holder is one Matthew, although a number of others were considered, but were found to be too zealous in their beliefs. Although the current occupant isn't much better, let's be frank. The Wars of Vengeance occurred at the same time as the Age of Apostasy, and a history of those events has been sent to you previously, as well as a report of the revelations of the Anchorite and its place in the formation of the ecclesiarchy, Travelling, to say the least. Further historical records will be sent to you in good time. I am considering compiling a complete history of the Imperium from the fall of Cadia to our present era, concentrating upon the Indomitus Crusade and our Lord Commander Gilliman's role within it. Until then, may the Emperor protect. Regards, Inquisitor A.B. Prince